Okay, well, let's turn to the Word of God this morning, Acts chapter 4. We're continuing our study in the book of Acts, and I've entitled the message, No Other Name. And I'd like to read the text first, and then we'll consider its application to our life this morning. We'll be reading Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see this man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called the men again and commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Father, we want to thank you for your word this morning. And as usual, it's an absolute privilege and delight to study it and to apply it to our lives. And Holy Spirit, we know that you're the revealer. You're our mentor, our teacher, the one that comes alongside to reveal the Father and the Son. And we ask this morning that you would have free reign in our hearts, Lord. God, to do exactly what you want to do. And so, God, we commit this time to you. We pray that your word would go out with power and it would accomplish the purpose for which you're sending it this morning. And so we want to say thank you in advance because we know that you have a promise in your word that it won't come back empty. And God, we're asking and praying that you would be pleased with our response to this word that you're giving us today. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. In our last study in the book of Acts, we were in chapter three. And in chapter three, we have the account of a man that was born crippled, over 40 years old, that was miraculously healed. And this was part of the fulfillment of prophecy from Isaiah 61, where the prophet said that, that the, the Messiah, who we know to be Jesus, 
would heal the sick, the dead would be raised, those that were lepers would be cleansed. These were all things that were, were never done, that had never occurred at that time. And so when these signs came, it was indication that the Messiah had come, and now the disciples following in the steps and footsteps of Jesus are performing the very same type of miracles. And we learned from our, our study last week, in terms of application, the very interesting parallels between this crippled man who was healed who was crippled physically, and those of us that are crippled spiritually, and what life was like before we came to Christ, just outside of the temple, never able to really enter into the life of the kingdom of God, um, helpless, without hope, dominated by the sinful nature, no escape, and uh, just feeling like that's our destiny, just settling for table scraps in life. And God comes along like Peter did, and he lifts us up, and he brings us into his family, and he adopts us, and he gives us access to the temple of God, and he makes us whole, which was the second lesson that we learned from last week, was the question that Jesus asked of a similar situation in John chapter 5, where there was a paralytic at the pool of Siloam, and there Jesus asked a man who had been crippled for 38 years a very odd question, do you want to be well? Seeming to indicate that not everyone wants to be well. Not everyone wants to get whole. There's certain reasons why people don't want to be whole. There's certain responsibilities that you don't have to take care of if you're not whole. Uh, somebody that's physically sick, like the man that we saw this healing in last week in our study. There was a, a huge leap that he had to take at that moment when Peter touched him and grabbed his hand and said, rise up and walk. Because at that moment, everything that the man knew about life was going to change. His vocation, he would never be able to beg again if he got to his feet. And certainly if he's jumping and leaping, that kind of precludes begging. And so this man's life was transformed, but there are a lot of people that don't want to get up because they're comfortable at the place they're at. And one of, the, one of the things that we talked about last week that I want to just mention again briefly is a question to you. How whole do you want to be? There are Christians that don't want to be completely whole. They get, you know, better than they were. They're saved. They're in the kingdom of God. They go to church. They might even teach Sunday school or be involved in fellowship at some level, but there's this limit, this glass ceiling that they come to when it comes to change, and they said, that's as whole as I want to be. Thank you very much. That's enough. When, of course, God's plan is that, uh, is that you would be as whole as Christ is, that God is going to make in us and create in us the image of his son, according to Romans 8:29. That's his purpose and his plan for your life. And so I challenged the people last week, and I want to challenge all of us again this morning, is how whole do you want to be? Or have you put some sort of a cap on it in your marriage? What you're willing to do as a husband? What you're willing to do as a wife? Have you put a cap on, on your obedience to Christ in areas in your life where you've struggled and you've just kind of just excused a, a lifestyle of, of carnality? Is there some area in your life that you've just told God, you know, maybe not directly, but indirectly by a lack of pursuit of God is that's as whole as I care to be at this time. But the Bible says that a proper response for a believer who's been touched by the mercy of God, is that we offer our bodies, which are no longer our own because they've been bought at a price, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And that's our spiritual act of worship. So in essence, if you are a born-again Christian, we aren't allowed or given the privilege of saying, that's whole enough, thank you very much. But we need to be those that go from the dramatic work that God did in this cripple through Peter and as he was healed instantaneously, we are healed 
from spiritual sin and wickedness instantaneously in the sense of our, our standing before God, but then we have this long life of sanctification, of God gradually conforming us to the image of his son. And I want to encourage you, if you don't leave uh, this service with anything else in terms of application, is are you as whole today as God wants you to be? And if not, which I'm assuming we'd all shake our heads no, although I saw a couple of people doing it, but I'm not as whole as I want to be. I'm not as whole as God wants me to be. And so my job is not to say, that's enough. I'm not willing to change here and I'm not willing to change here. And, and that's, just my, that's just me. That's how I grew up. That's my personality. That, I, that's my part of my heritage. I'm this race or I'm that race and we're just volatile people, you know, whatever it is. We don't lay any excuses out anymore, but we simply say, God, this is the way I am. I'm not as whole as I want to be. I'm not as whole as you want me to be, but I'm a living sacrifice here today. Have your way. Change me. Make me into the man or the woman of God that you want me to be. Well, you'd think that that would really thrill anyone in a position of spiritual leadership to see remarkable change like this taking place in people's lives. But this isn't the case we find that there is a confrontation that developed between the priests and captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees with Peter and John for performing this miracle, this act of kindness toward this crippled man. And that's where we pick our text up in verse 1. We find that uh, uh, several different people are mentioned, the, the, the priests who we know who they are, what their job is. And then we've got the, the captain of the guard, which was basically the chief of police for the temple mount. And their job was to keep order and to make sure that everything was was safe for the people that were worshiping. And, uh, and then we have the Sadducees. Their name in the Greek actually means the righteous ones. The righteous ones. Uh, and a brief summary of the distinctives of, of the Sadducees I think will be helpful in, in this text in terms of our understanding it. Number one is that they were the ruling class in Jerusalem and had complete authority and responsibility for everything that happened on the Temple Mount. Secondly, from a theological standpoint, they de denied the existence of angels or demons. Well, right away, that, that really presents some theological problems for the Christian life. The, the third thing that's even worse is that they denied the existence of a resurrection. They didn't believe in immortality. They didn't accept or believe in the messianic hope, and they didn't believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead, although they were faced with the incontrovertible evidence that there was no body. And the last thing is that they were determined to preserve their lifestyle, their wealth, and their position that came as a part of their service, if you want to call it that, in the temple. And so they came to Peter and John, and the Bible says that they were greatly disturbed. It means to be annoyed or indignant. These guys were ticked off. They were really upset that Peter and John were not only teaching the resurrection, which they didn't believe in, but... There was, the people were so enamored with what had happened and people were coming to Christ in droves and they were quite upset by this. And the question is, why? Why would people that purport to be spiritual leaders of the people of God be upset that, number one, there was a miraculous healing, which they acknowledge, and number two, that people in droves were coming into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Why would they be so upset? Why were they so threatened? Well, I'll share three reasons why I believe that the Sadducees and, and, uh, and the Sanhedrin, which is made up of these folks that we're talking about this morning, why they were so threatened. I think the first reason is that their power base was threatened. 
we, we find uh, some very revealing scriptures in the Gospels that, uh, that are related to us about the life of Christ as he was healing, as he was preaching the gospel, as he was confronting the religious leaders of that day. And uh, in John 12, verses 19, the Pharisees were saying to one another after Jesus performed another miraculous sign, they were saying, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone to him. Do you see what's happening? They're concerned about their territory. They're concerned about the number of people. They're concerned about their stake in what's happening on the Temple Mount. The second thing that I think threatened them was their pride. The Bible tells us repeatedly, and we're going to find it out again in two weeks as we study uh, Acts chapter 5, that they, the Bible says that these guys were filled with jealousy. They were filled with jealousy. They saw people being saved and going over, and that really annoyed them, irritated them, bothered them. The third thing that I think threatened them is their political influence was being threatened. In John 11, we have another very revealing look at the Sanhedrin as they call a meeting together to try to figure out what to do with Jesus. And it says, what are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man, referring to Jesus, performing many miraculous signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Are you seeing what's happening here? This is all about power and about position and about authority and about personal gain and benefit. This is what's driving the spiritual leaders of Israel in this time of the miraculous beginning of the church. And so they seized Peter in verse 3 and they jailed them. Now it's interesting, there's a little note there that says the time of day, that it was evening time and so they put them in jail. It's kind of meaningless to us. We just think, well, they, they want to go to bed. You know, they want to move on. They've had a long day <laughs> and now it's time to sleep and they'll come back in the morning. Well, there's actually more to it than that because in the Mishnah, in, uh, in the Sanhedrin writings in chapter four, verse one, it says that the judgments about money may be commenced in the day and concluded in the night, but judgments about life must be begun in the day and concluded in the day. So what we know, and, and anybody with a Jewish background, which most of us don't have, but anyone with a Jewish background would right away understand that the intention of the Sanhedrin was to put Peter and John to death, not just to have a little inquiry. And so they were trying them at the next day because if it was simply a matter of trying to figure out what happened and how this guy got healed, they could have taken care of that in the evening and into the night. But they couldn't take care of issues of life and death, the death penalty, at night. And so they jailed these men until the next day. And believe me, Peter and John knew exactly what all this meant. They realized that their life was on the line. They realized the intent of the Sanhedrin was to do nothing less to them than, the, than they had done to Jesus Christ. And so they called them in the next day. And, um, and before that happens, we find out that as Peter is preaching this message, uh, he doesn't even get a chance to give an altar call. You know, they basically grab him from the temple courts and they yank him out Peter and John, and they jailed them. And despite that, the Bible says that many people who heard the message of Peter believed. And the number of men grew to 5,000. Now, it's interesting that they mentioned that it was the men who were counted. If we assume an equal number of women, we're up to 10,000. And if the case is, uh, is true that 
you know, minors were coming to Christ. Let's say that the family members were coming to Christ. They were listening to this message as well. And the average family was four or five at the time, but let's just say it was two. Then we're talking about 20,000 people that had come to Christ in the span of just a few days. 20,000 people, that's like a third of the population of Kauai. But nonetheless, it's like, for us, that's a lot of people, 20,000 people. You get 20,000 people up on the Temple Mount and that's a movement, you know? And now we can begin to get in the heart and the skin of the Sanhedrin and realize why they were so threatened. This wasn't just a little group of people going around teaching. This was a, this was a full throttle movement that God was birthing in this early days of the church through the power of the Holy Spirit. But the religious leaders were not happy at all. So the next morning, they convened a panel, an inquiry panel, of rulers, elders, and the teachers of the law, all making up the Sanhedrin, including Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests, and then John, Alexander, and other men of the high priest family. Um, collectively, these leaders were the leaders of the Sanhedrin, which in essence was the Jewish Supreme Court. That's what they, that was their role. And they had vested interest from the Roman government to... Uh, have great power and authority over all things Jewish, and they controlled the vast wealth of the temple and all the financial monopolies related to this temple sacrifice. You remember when Jesus was overturning money tables and all that? It was a Sanhedrin that controlled all that. It was a, this was a game. This was like a mafioso. I mean, this was like these guys, you know, like Jesus said, were all clean on the outside, but they were full of dead men's bones. There was a corruption that was so deep in them that they could get up and, and preach a message and talk about the, the things of God and even call themselves the righteous ones. And yet they were so corrupt, they couldn't even see how bad it had become. And these were the same leaders that had been those that condemned Jesus to death on the cross. And so they meet with Peter and John in the morning and they begin the line of questioning and they say, by what power and what name did you do this in reference to healing the the crippled man. It's interesting because the, the word is dunamis, but uh, many commentators believe that based on the question of the context, they weren't asking if it was God's power, but they were assuming it was magical power or satanic power by which they performed this miracle, which of course is exactly what they accused Jesus of when he cast out demons. By what power did you do this? It must have been Beelzebub. He cast out demons by the power of Satan himself, and Jesus talked about how the ridiculousness of that contention. And here we go again, throwing the same type of foolish arguments that somehow this was a satanic power that did something that was such a blessing to so many people. And so they accuse them or question them about this power and about the name by which they healed this man. And of course, Peter responds, and it says that he was filled with the Spirit. It means that he was empowered or imbued or overflowing with this work of the Spirit. Now it's interesting because that began in Acts chapter two on the day of Pentecost. And the disciples were, were filled with the Spirit of God. The Bible tells us in Romans eight that, that we can't be Christians without the Spirit of God. That if we are Christians, if we're believers, then we've already received the Spirit of Christ. But this empowerment, this coming upon, this filling, is to be a regular part of our Christian lives. But it's interesting to note that that Jesus attaches this empowerment and this filling with witnessing. Acts 1.8 tells us that you'll receive power, and in essence, paraphrasing, for witnessing. And I find it so interesting that, that people often want to be filled with the power just so that they can feel close to God or so that they can feel that they're being identified by God as one of his special kids, 
you know, that there's this sense of I want to have the feeling and the experience versus I want to be a mouthpiece and an ambassador for Jesus Christ. And I'll be honest with you, I think that's why a lot of Christians, uh, you know, if you asked them, when was the last time you really experienced the filling of the Spirit? It's a long time ago. And the reason is, is oftentimes because they're not witnessing. They're not really being used as ambassadors for Christ. And because they're not being used, God says, well, you don't really need this particular power if you're not going to be utilizing it for the purpose for which I sent the Holy Spirit. And he allows the Holy Spirit to continue to teach us through the word and to guard our hearts and to give us a conscience about what's right or wrong. But that sense of power in preaching or teaching or witnessing is lacking. And so I want to really encourage us as a church and for those of you that are visiting, we need to be those that are crying out and saying, what is wrong that it's been so long since I experienced the power of God in my life for witnessing? We, we should be registering that something is terribly wrong with that and crying out to God and saying, I'm not as whole as I want to be. And I'm definitely not as whole as you want me to be. And so we surrender ourselves to God and say, God, fill us again with the power of your spirit for the purpose of making disciples of all nations. And a part of that is witnessing. And so the, one of the Holy Spirit's jobs, among others, is to give us that kind of power at those moments, those strategic moments when God gives us an opportunity to be an ambassador of reconciliation. And so Peter stands up and he's filled with the Spirit on the spot. This is wonderful. And if, and if you've been a Christian any length of time, you know what that feeling is like. And, and I'll tell you something, I'm going to derail myself here momentarily, but there is nothing like the abundant life when you're following Christ. And there's nothing like being filled by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, and keeping in step with the Spirit if you want to have an adventure of a life in Christ. But far too many Christians have settled for mediocrity in their Christian life because they don't stay in step with the Spirit. They're not even sure where the Spirit's going anymore. It's been so long. The la you know, the last time many Christians can remember the Spirit spoke to them, it was like, gee, what year was that? And this is supposed to be a daily experience for us, such that when you go out of this place today, there's this sense of, of fellowship that the Bible talks about in, in Philippians 2 and, and uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, of this intimate koinonia with the Holy Spirit, where he is guiding us. And step by step along the way, it's like, Holy Spirit, what do you want to do now? Where are you sending me today? Who am I going to talk to? I can hardly wait. And Holy Spirit, I'm going to trust you to give me the words and the empowerment to know what to say at those moments. That's exactly what Jesus promised the disciples when he was teaching them in the Gospels. He said, don't worry about what to say. When that moment comes, the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you, will give you the words to say. And he'll do it not just for the disciples, but he'll do it for any of us who are willing to call on him and ask for his help. And so Peter, filled with the Spirit, declares that it was in the name of Jesus Christ that this man was healed. You want to know the name? You want to know the name, he says? It was Jesus Christ, the guy that you guys crucified. <laughs> we talked about this last week, the transformation of, of Peter from the guy that denied Christ three times to the guy that gets right in the face of the most powerful panel of people in all of Israel, the Jewish Sanhedrin. This is kind of like a David and Goliath story of the New Testament. And so he says, you crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. And by the way, this is the third time in a matter of days that Peter has confronted the religious leaders with their direct and personal responsibility for the brutal murder of Jesus Christ. 
These guys were not used to being treated this way. One of the things that I find very interesting, and I'll just make note of briefly here, is that if there was ever a moment when the Sanhedrin could have refuted the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this would have been it. When Peter was preaching at them about their personal responsibility for the death of Jesus, and yet, despite that, God raised his son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, from the dead, this would have been the moment when the Sanhedrin would have said, come on, I don't know who you're kidding. We've got the body. Everybody knows we got the body. I, I don't know why. Just give this thing up already. It's just not happening. And the movement of the early church would have been crushed and stopped right there, right on the spot. It would have been over. But these guys could never produce the body. Not only could they not produce the body, they never even questioned the truth or validity of the resurrection of Christ. Why? Because despite their theology, despite the, the damage it was doing to, their, to their, you know, their gig, despite all of those things, they knew that it was true. They had irrefutable evidence that Jesus Christ had been raised from the dead. And so Peter goes on in verse 11 and 12, and it says, not only was this man healed by this name, but it's in the name of Jesus Christ that men are saved. He is the cornerstone. He is the capstone. And he goes on to say two phrases that are universal negatives. Universal negatives are statements that allow for no exception whatsoever. And he says these in verse 12. Just take a look at the, at the text here just for a moment. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by, to men by which we must be saved. In the Greek, it's a double negative. It means no way, no how, under any circumstances, is there any other way to be saved except through Jesus Christ. There is no other name by any means whatsoever that a man or woman can come into the kingdom of God. So Peter is not saying that Jesus is a way, but he is saying that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Now that was a, that was a very powerful statement, a very contentious statement to make even then, much less now. We live in an, in an age where anyone claiming exclusivity of Jesus Christ being the only means of salvation in a pluralistic and multicultural society like ours is absolutely abhorrent to a lot of people. It just makes their skin crawl. You can say that Jesus is a way. You can say that Jesus is one of many ways. But to say that Jesus is the only way, and then if you follow it up by saying, and if a man or woman does not believe in Christ, they will spend a Christless eternity despite their religious efforts, whatever they might be of whatever brand, then you're in real trouble. Then you're, you're intolerant. And we've got all these politically correct words that people flash around about what Christians are when we really uh, explain what the gospel says. But the Bible frequently makes these statements. Let me read a few for you. In Isaiah 43, verse 11, the prophet says, of God, God speaking, I am the Lord and apart from me, there is no savior. Here's another one from Hosea 13:4. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you up out of Egypt. You shall acknowledge no other God but me, no savior except me. About a year ago, I was, um, we live up in the homesteads, which is up by Wailua Falls, farther up the, the, um, the road up there, up Kuomoto Drive. And uh, we live about a block and a half away from the, the temple, the Hindu temple that's being constructed. They have the largest crystal in the world. Um, they are kind of a centerpiece for the Hindu movement in the United States, this particular temple that's being built. 
And, uh, and I've, I like to go over there every once in a while and witness to those guys. And, uh, and I like to run. Uh, you know, I, I run about three times a week and I run up to the Arboretum, which is a, you know, it's a nice little stretch. And then I come back. And as I was running back, often you will find these, uh, I call them Hindu wannabes. They're Caucasian Hindus with a little dot on their forehead. And then occasionally we run into a real Hindu, you know, like an Indian Hindu. And there was this, there was this Indian couple that was walking and he was 80 and it looks like he was with his daughter and she was probably, you know, maybe 55 or so. And, uh, and I could tell that they were looking for the Hindu temple. And so I felt really strong impression from the Holy Spirit, stop and talk to these people. And uh, so I stopped and I began to strike up a conversation. And a uh, very pleasant, you know, conversation about, you know, how they're enjoying the island. They asked me, where's the Hindu temple? And I said, well, can I walk you there? And, uh, and they said, sure. And I said, can, I, can we chat? I have some questions for you along the way. Do you mind? And uh, no, 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 no. Yes, ask the questions, you know, in the nice Indian accent and everything. And uh, patted me on the back and said, I'm so glad you're interested in Hinduism. And I said, well, I, I am. I said, I, I have a pretty good understanding of it, but there's some things that I'd like to ask uh, just to get a fuller understanding of your beliefs. And I said, by the way, I want you to know right up front, I'm a Christian. Oh, that's so nice. We're Christians too. And, you know, the same thing. I'm like... <laughs> Uh, which is now the, the big line from Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, everybody. Everybody's a Christian now, um, even if they're cults. And so uh, I'm having this conversation with this very nice Indian man. And I said, you know, I said, I, I'm interested. You know, I've been to your temple before that you're going to. And I said, I, know, I noticed that you have like hundreds of gods that are, that are represented by all these idols. And I said, I know enough about the Hindu religion that you've actually got millions of gods. Oh, yes, we have millions, all the same God, different names. And I said, well, that's interesting. I said, can you explain that to me? And he said, well, my name is, I forget what his name is, some Indian name. And he said, my name is, let's call him Parish. And so Parish, he's, uh, uh, my name is Parish, but I'm also known as grandfather. And I'm also known as great grandfather. I'm also known as a, as a husband. And, I, and I'm also known as a man of God. And, and so he tells me, me all these names and he says in much the same way uh, God that you serve Yahweh has many other names and we call him by Vishnu and all these other names and I said well that's very interesting and I said so you wouldn't mind if I called you Jack or Frank and he got very offended and I said he said my name is not Jack and it's not Frank it's Parish and I said well well wait a second we can call God Yahweh the father and and God his son Jesus Christ we can call him by those names but we're not allowed to call him by different God's names and say that that's the same if you're comfortable with me calling you Jack or uncomfortable, then you probably have a good idea of how God feels about being called Vishnu. And, he's, and the conversation started to change. You know? I was, I have to tell you, I was nice as could be to the man. I was real respectful and kind and just, can you explain that to me? I don't understand it. And he started to bristle, you know, get really mad. And he says, well, you know, he's just, he's, the, he's got many names, many names. And I said, well, could I ask you one more question? We're getting to the, to the temple. He's, he's walking faster now. I said, it's right up there. The pace quickened by double. And so, uh, so I asked him, I said, let me ask you one more question. Do you believe in the Bible? Oh, yes, the Bible's a good book. And I said, well, it's interesting because in the Bible, God in the Old Testament says that we're not to worship any other God except him. What gods is he talking about? And then that's when he really got mad. And he started calling me names in Indian yeah, I'm, I'm, assu I'm assuming that's what he was doing. He wasn't saying, it wasn't a pleasant expression on his face. I think he was cursing me or something like that. But here, here's the point, that there, there's an exclusivity about Christ that, that people initially, when you just talk about God in general terms, it's like, oh yeah, we believe in God. But when we get down to the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the exclusivity of salvation by Christ alone, then the fireworks start. And that's the culture we live in. 
people are absolutely intolerant of the idea that there is only one way because by virtue of saying there's only one way, then, then they say we are condemning everyone else to a Christless eternity for simply being raised in their culture, for simply worshiping their God that they were raised with, whatever, how, whatever the argument is. But here are Jesus' words about himself. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no other way to God, the Father, except through me. First uh, Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. We find there's so many scriptures I could reference here, but suffice it to say is that the Bible clearly teaches the exclusivity of Jesus Christ in terms of salvation. Now, again, statements like this are labeled as intolerant, as, as narrow-minded, and as uh, negative and unhelpful to unity within the within the sphere of mankind. But those arguments are actually quite foolish because if someone is claiming truth, truth in and of itself by its very nature is exclusive. If two plus two is four, it can't be five or eight or 22. You can only have one answer. And so if someone is claiming truth, then that necessarily excludes anything else that teaches against that truth because that would make it false. Interestingly, that when the atheists say there's no God, they violate their own principle of tolerance because they are saying anyone that believes that there is a God is wrong. If someone says we must be tolerant of all faiths, which we hear so often in our culture today, then they're showing intolerance to those that believe that there is an intolerant God of other faiths. <laughs> if the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses are right, then the Christians are wrong. If the Muslims or the Hindus are right, then, the, then Christianity is completely wrong. The, the bottom line is, is that everyone can be wrong, but not everybody can be right. We could all be wrong, but we can't all be right. The very nature of truth makes it exclusive. And I want to encourage you as Christians to not be apologetic about the intolerance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not my intolerance. It's not your intolerance. It's not your exclusivity. It's God's. God says there's only one way. God says there's only one Savior. God says there's only one Christ, only one mediator. And I think we do a great disservice when we try to scale that back. And we try to say, well, you know what? God loves everybody. I, you know, I don't know why you're so worried about this intolerance thing. God doesn't want anyone to perish, wants everyone to be saved. All those things are true, but the, but the bottom line reality is that the Bible, as recorded by God, is intolerant of any other means of salvation that man might offer. I'm not saying get in people's faces about it, but I'm just saying we shouldn't be apologetic. We need to stand up and say, you know what? It is intolerant. It's God's word. You can reject it as intolerant. You can reject him as intolerant. But these are the consequences. Only those that believe in Christ will have eternal life. And that's what God says over and over. Those that reject him will be condemned. Those that receive him will have eternal life. And so Peter, now mind you, he's facing what he knows to be an effort to put him to death. And he doesn't say, well, let me rephrase it a little bit. You know, let me soften this a little bit. He just goes right at it. And he holds nothing back. Why was he able to do it? The power of the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it's going to take the power of God by his spirit to give us the power and the strength to teach accurately what the Bible actually says about salvation in Christ. Well, we have the interesting observations of the, of the Sanhedrin about Peter and John. They're, they're just like on their heels. They aren't used to being treated this way. They, get, they call people in and people are just like fear and trembling. But Peter and John just stand up courageously, boldly, cool as cucumbers, and they just lay it out. And they lay out the truth, and the Sanhedrin 
are back on their heels and it says that they saw the courage of Peter and John. It means boldness or confidence or outspokenness. And they were blown away by that. They realized that these men were unschooled. In the Greek, it's agramatos. The, the A, the prefix, means not. Grammatos, where we get our word grammar or learning from. These guys were, were unschooled. It didn't mean they were illiterate. But what it meant is that they were not trained technically in the professional rabbinical schools. It's the same thing that they, they accused Jesus of. It's like, where did this man get his learning? What, show me your diploma. Who gave you authority to talk like this? <laughs> I want to see the paperwork. Well, Jesus didn't have any, and neither did, did Peter and John, but they recognized them as unschooled. And it says, because they recognized they were unschooled, they were absolutely amazed at the authority and the power and the witness that they were bringing before them. It goes on to say that they realized they were ordinary men, this is one of my favorite parts because in the Greek, it's idiotis, where we get our word idiot from. <laughs> Last week, we talked about ignoramuses and now we're talking about idiots. Now, in this time, in this culture, in the, in the language, it was not a derogatory term. Today, it is. But that, back then, if you were an ignoramus, it just meant you didn't know anything about anything. It didn't mean it was necessarily, you know, that you uh, were a bad person or a complete idiot. It just you didn't know anything about a particular topic or maybe you didn't know anything about anything at all. You were an ignoramus. Uh, but if you're an idiot, that means you're like a fool. But in this time, it just meant that, uh, that you were ordinary, that you were plain, that you were unschooled, untrained, and that you were just a plain person. And they were astonished by this that these plain people without any credentials, without any background, could be so powerful in their midst that basically the Sanhedrin was just speechless listening to these guys. I mean, it was David and Goliath. It was a New Testament version of it. I mean, when I read this, I thought, yay, you know, I'm just like, go to these guys. This is a big deal for these men to put their life on the line and not to soften the teaching whatsoever, but to keep bringing it home. And so they saw the courage and that they were unschooled and that they were ordinary men. I think about how many, how many ordinary people there are in the Bible. I think about Moses, who described himself as slow of speech, a poor public speaker. I think about Rahab, who was a prostitute. I think about Esther, the small-town Jewish girl that entered a pageant. I think about David, a shepherd boy that was overlooked by everyone except God. I think about Mary, the mother of Jesus, an ordinary teenager with an extraordinary heart for the Lord. And I think about the disciples. I mean, talking about ordinary. Well, the whole point of God is though he can use extraordinary people, and he does, the bulk of his ambassadorship is made up of people who are ordinary, even people who are unschooled. That's God's whole point through Paul in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he says, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many influential, not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Now, I think you guys are a lot better than ignoramuses and a lot better than idiots. <laughs> many, many of you are very skilled. You are professional people. Many of you have businesses and companies. Many of you have been in business for yourselves. Many of you have great responsibility. And you are much more than ordinary people. But the point of the scripture is that God uses even ordinary people who are willing to serve an extraordinary God. And God will fill us. There are no people that are disqualified for ministry. 
There are no people who lack enough training to go out and witness. There just aren't any of those because we're all qualified. If you can call yourself an ignoramus and an idiot, then you're in good company with the disciples. <laughs> and therefore, you can be ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And so they took note that these guys were very powerful. And it says that they were astonished by their witness. And it goes on to say that they recognized and took note that these men had been with Jesus. What a great thing to have somebody say about you. To have people have a conversation with you, even your enemies, and to have them say at the end of the conversation to themselves, these guys obviously have been hanging around Jesus Christ. Now we have, we have testimony in Exodus 24 of, of uh, Moses when he'd spent time with Christ. He came down glowing. Now some of you go around and you glow. Well, that happens on occasion. But more often than not, the observations that people will make will be about your courage under pressure to keep standing for Christ. Anyone can stand for Christ when you're in a church service. Anyone can stand for Christ when there's no pressure. But these guys were under pressure of potential death and they didn't fold, they didn't crumble, and they didn't soften the message. And these guys thought to themselves, where have we seen this kind of courage before? Well, about two months earlier, when Jesus stood trial. I want to share something with you that you have people watching you whether you know it or not. You're an example whether you know it or not. It's just whether you're a good one or a bad one. But people in your life, your children, your family, your, your, uh, your peers, the people that you fellowship with, they all watch. And they're observing everything. And the privilege that you have is to be so surrendered to Christ. In other words, saying, Lord, I'm not as whole as you want me to be, but I'm on the table here. Do whatever you want. No glass ceiling here. And that people observe that and under pressure they begin to see your life over a period of time and they say, there is something about that person that is obviously divine. There's something about that person that evidences that they've been with Christ. And you know, quite frankly, just spending quiet time in the morning can change your life and can change how you treat people. And I, and I can't say enough about the importance of daily devotions. Doesn't get talked about a lot. Doesn't get, uh, people don't ask you very much. I'd encourage you guys, especially from, uh, from Costa Mesa, but also our church, is to ask each other today what you're learning in the Word, to just encourage each other, to spur each other on in that area, because if you're not in the Word, you're not spending face-to-face -face time with God, it's quite unlikely that anyone is going to see Jesus in you. But as you spend face-to-face -face time with God through Jesus Christ in His Word on a daily basis, I can guarantee you that the transformation is going to be taking place, and people are going to see in you and take notice that you've been with Jesus. Well, the dilemma of, the, of Peter's accusers, and we'll go through this fairly quickly, is that they were forced to acknowledge this man was healed. The guy was standing right there. And they conferred privately about what to do, having acknowledged this miracle in verses 15 and 16. They determined to stop the gospel from spreading. Can you believe this? This is like if God started doing something here in this service, and God, the Holy Spirit fell on this place, and people were just, God was doing a work. And I said, whoa, stop, 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 stop. We don't do that here in this church. You're breaking all the rules. Are you following me? Except this is not just a church, but this is a spiritual leadership of all Israel that is trying to stop the very hope of the nation. The thing that they've prayed for and cried out for and lived for and longed for is finally come upon them and they're busy stopping it. The Bible tells us that the Sanhedrin agreed to warn Peter and John against speaking in Jesus' name. Apaleo, it means to menace or to threaten. 
I mean, this is witness intimidation. In our culture, if you, if you intimidate a witness that's a, a key witness to a trial, it's a misdemeanor. But if you witness them with threat, it's a felony. And so here we've got the Supreme Court of the Jewish nation committing a felony against Peter and John in their effort to somehow quell this movement of God. And so verse 18, it says that they commanded Peter and John not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus anymore. Now, Peter and John reacted right away. I mean, they weren't, they were, okay, we, we don't want to make any trouble. We just are nice guys following a nice guy who wants to get along with everybody. And if you don't mind, we'll, we'll just, can we talk about um, his father? Can we talk about God and maybe just not say the Jesus word? Would that be okay? <laughs> Drop the Messiah term. That's a little controversial. We can leave that out. No, they didn't say that. What they did is they came right back in boldness and said, hey, you guys decide. You're the Sanhedrin. You're the Supreme Court of the religious people of Israel. You tell us, is it right for us to obey you rather than God? As for us, we can't help but speak of what we've seen and heard. These guys are bold. Which brings us to the issue of civil disobedience. Romans chapter 13, 1 through 4 tells us very clearly that, that God has instituted the governments of the world. Well, we may not like that, but that's what the Bible says. Look it up on your own sometime. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. It makes it very clear that God is the one that appoints leaders, that God is the one that appoints for his purposes, sometimes to punish a nation, sometimes to exalt a nation, but always to carry out his divine and eternal purposes. And he says those that are under that government, especially as believers, need to submit ourselves to the authority of that government. Unless... That government requires us to do something that's in clear violation of God's revealed will and God's purposes. We have examples of, uh, of civil disobedience in the Old Testament. Daniel, who prayed despite Nebuchadnezzar's uh, edict that no one should pray except to him for one month, and Daniel just went right up to his room and prayed three times a day and violated the, the edict. Why? Because it was in violation of the clear call of God on his life. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we will not bow the knee to that idol. And then we have the Hebrew midwives who refused to put the baby boys to death in Egypt. And then we've got the account in Hebrews 11 of, uh, of Moses' parents not putting their own son to death because they feared God more than they feared the edict of Pharaoh. So there are times clearly, historically in the Bible, that we are to refuse and to exercise civil disobedience under certain circumstances. What are some examples today of things that would require disobedience to an employer or to the government. Let me give you a few that I think are worth considering. One, if your employer instructs you to do something illegal or immoral, I'm not saying get in his face, but I'm saying after you've discussed it and made your appeal and everything, you must refuse. How about if a medical facility instructs you to participate in euthanasia or abortion, you must refuse. If a government tells you that you can't mention Christianity in your school or your workplace and the Holy Spirit speaks to you to witness, you must witness. If it's declared a crime, which I'm assuming if the Lord tarries, it eventually will be that homosexuality and abortion and pornography and adultery to preach against those as sin, we must keep preaching against those things. If, it's a, if a law is enacted that prohibits the worship of God and makes it a crime to preach the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the means of, only means of salvation, we must refuse. These are things that we must stand on. 
I want to encourage you because if the Lord tarries, those things will come to pass. They're already happening right now. You're aware of those, obviously. But we need to, what I do, I'll just share briefly, is that I do fire drills in my mind. What would I do if? You know, if you don't do a fire drill, what's the whole point of a fire drill? A fire drill is to help you be prepared mentally and emotionally in the fog of whatever's going on to do what you know is right. And I would suggest this on a whole lot of different levels. I, I, for the men, because so many men struggle with pornography and adultery, I encourage you to, to do a fire drill. What are you going to do if, the, if an opportunity presents itself? And get in the mirror and say, no, I will not do that. You know, and just be firm with yourself. I mean, if you have to practice, practice. No. Not even. Under no circumstances. That's not going to happen. Get away from me. <laughs> Whatever you have to do. But I think even under these circumstances that we're talking about, related to what will you do when someone prohibits you from doing something that God has called you to do? Will you fold your cards and say, well, God, I just, I don't want to, I've got a family, I've got a job, I've got responsibilities, I've got a mortgage. I just don't want to go there. And all of a sudden, inadvertently, you've told God, that's as whole as I want to be. You following me? So it helps me to do fire drills so that I'm ready when those moments come and I can say no to ungodliness, no to wickedness, and no to disobedience to God. Well, the text ends with another threat and uh, it actually deepens because it means to menace additionally or threaten additionally. They couldn't find any way to punish these guys because no crime had been committed. There's no, there's no resolution to a crime that wasn't committed and there's no punishment that can be meted out. And so they had to let these guys go and then we have a summary in verse 22 that all the people were praising God. I mean, it's a David and Goliath story. This is a phenomenal act of God. Now, why Peter and John were not killed, I don't know. They didn't have anything on Jesus either. But for whatever reason, it wasn't the timing of God. Peter would be killed. John would not be a martyr he would write what we know as, as the book of Revelation and would die of old age. But Peter eventually would be martyred, but this wasn't his time. I, I think this speaks to me of the sovereignty of God about our lives and that we don't have to be afraid. We need to go in bold. We need to be courageous. You see, it was the courage and the boldness and the, the assurance and the power of the Spirit that caused 5,000 men and potentially 20,000 plus people to come to Christ. It was that boldness. It won't happen when people are like, well, yeah, I, I am a Christian. Why, why are you asking? Did I, did I offend you? I can take down those scriptures off my desk. I mean, I don't want to cause any problems here or anything. I mean, I just, I just want people to know I'm, but I can stop that. You want me to stop praying at, 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 the, at the, you know, stop reading my Bible? I, I can, I, I'll just bring my, uh, my little teeny tiny New Testament. I'll put it on my iPad or on my, uh, my palm so that you won't have to see it as actually a Bible. It'll just look like, it's, just, it's a Bible on there. Is that okay? Are you following me? Nobody's impressed with that. But when men and women stand up boldly in the power of the Spirit and they proclaim the gospel, the exclusive gospel, the only means of salvation, people take notice. Your opponents will take notice and the heat will, will rise but those that are hungry for authenticity will see in your lives something that maybe they've never seen before. And that's not just nice, good-looking, go-to-church kind of people. 
but they're seeing people that are willing to lay it all on the line because they are compelled, as Paul was, to preach the gospel because of the love of Christ driving them and because of the Holy Spirit inspiring them, they cannot help but speak. There's a burning in their chest to get the message out like the Old Testament prophets had. That's what's needed in this day and age that we live in. God's calling us to be a people like that. Which brings me back to the point that I made from last week one more time. Are you as whole as you want to be? Are you as whole as God wants you to be? In your marriage, in your conduct with your children, in your business ethics, in your moral stand? Are you as whole as God wants you to be or as whole as you want to be? And if not, my encouragement is to do what I'm doing and what I'm encouraging our church to do is to lay ourselves again on the altar of sacrifice as living sacrifices, not dead ones, as living ones and saying, I am representing myself again, having been bought at a price, I relinquish all right to my life. I relinquish all effort to try to preserve myself or to sustain myself or to try to keep myself. This is exactly what the Sanhedrin was doing that was so wrong. Self-preservation. But Peter and John gave that up when they came to Christ. And because of that, it gave them holy boldness to speak and to say and to do what God called them to do. And as a result, the church was born. And I believe when men and women are willing to live this kind of a life, I believe the church will revive. And amazing things will happen. And your life will no longer be simply just having the right theology and being nice people. But it will be the most awesome, incredible, daily, moment-by-moment adventure you ever imagined possible. And you will never, ever want to go back to simply just being a nice Christian. Father, we thank you for this time this morning and for the opportunity to seek you in your word God, I thank you for these men and women that obviously love you, Lord, and uh, God, that have a heart for you. Many of these men and women have been Christians for many years, and they've grown up in the church and been so blessed with so much solid teaching. And God, all we're asking today is examine our hearts. And God, our heart cry is, Lord, we're not as whole as we want to be. We're not perfected yet. But one thing, as Paul said, we do pressing on toward the high calling that we have in Christ, not looking back, but pressing forward that we might meet that objective that you have for us in Christ of being whole in Christ, of being conformed to the image of your son, Jesus. And so God, we know that we've got things that need to be done. There are things that I don't even see in myself yet that you wanna do. And God, I just wanna say, collectively, we wanna remove the ceiling. We wanna say, God, have your way. We trust you, we love you, And we come with humility and with a a sense of awe and reverence for you. And we say, God, we're not as whole as we want to be. We're not as whole as you want us to be. But God, by your power, I pray that you would make us whole and that we would have nothing held back, but we would allow ourselves to be living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you, our God, our Savior, the only means of salvation. Praise you that you've communicated to us. Praise you that you didn't leave us in the dark about this. Praise you that you were honest with us. Praise you that you've told us the truth. And God, may you give us the power and the courage and the heart to speak this life-changing word to those around us. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great, hey, we love to pray for people in this church, by the way. So I know that there's gotta be some of you, maybe one or two that have a problem in your life. Things going on. How many of you, I won't even, how many of you, don't, don't raise your hands, how many of you 
have left problems at home. You don't know what to do. They're unresolved. How many of you on this marriage conference are struggling in your own marriage? And even just being in this conference is bringing up conflict. You know, I really believe in the power of prayer. And we're a church that loves to pray for people. We don't just say, oh, we'll pray for you, but we do it right on the spot. If you want prayer, our church will pray for you. I know you guys can pray for each other too. Pray for each other. Love each other today. And God bless you guys.